I loved hearing the voices. That was beautiful. Uh, This morning, we are stepping into a new series for the summer, and we are calling it Set Free, and we're looking at the seven deadly sins uh, and what it means for us to be set free within these sins and our sinfulness. Now, as we begin this series, one of the things I wanted to make sure everyone understood right off the bat is that the point of this series isn't to make you feel guilty or shame. It's not to make you feel ashamed of who you are for the things you've done. It's not to condemn you for the things as well. Right? Romans 8 reminds us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Jesus we've been set free from our sinfulness, from our punishment and brokenness. Right? The guilt and shame that we experience when our, when our sin is revealed to us, that's the work of the enemy. That's when he yells and he whispers at us that we aren't good enough because of the things that we've done. He tells us that we need to shape up and do better knowing that we never can. And so Jesus came that we might have freedom and have life. Uh, But this doesn't mean that you won't be challenged in this series as well. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. Leaves no regrets, but worldly sorrow brings death. When we recognize sin in our own lives, it brings a certain sorrow, knowing that we've put our trust in ourselves over our Creator, the one who knows us, the one who has a purpose and a plan for us. And so we feel the weight of our guilt, and in that we can feel ashamed, and this sorrow only brings death if it doesn't lead to repentance. But the sorrow we feel when we see our sin for what it is, that's a godly sorrow, and that always leads to repentance so that we can be free turning from our old way of living into the new creation that Jesus has for us, that he wants to create in us. So that's what this series isn't about. That's helpful, Scott. What is it about? Uh, The point of this series is about identifying these sins in our life so that we can be set free and that we can enjoy a fuller joy in Jesus, that we can experience the hope and the life that he has to offer for us. That's what the point of this series is. So, For today and for next week, we're going to be setting up uh, where we're going. We're going to be talking a little bit more about what sin is. It might feel a little bit more like teaching than preaching at points. Uh, But after that, we are going to start looking at the specific seven deadly sins. So, uh, like I said, this morning and next week, we're just going to be opening up to what is sin. And even as I ask the question, what is sin, we kind of run into a problem, right? It's It's something that each of us have chosen to define in different ways. And if we were to ask the world at large what sin is, people would define it very differently, right? Some people would say that sin is cutting down trees or drinking alcohol. Other people would say that it's a sin to not recycle, right? There's standards that we list for ourselves about what sin is and what it is not. And in fact, that's the very first sin that we fell into as a human race, right? Back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve chose to ignore God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they justified why it wasn't a sin for them to eat it, right? In Genesis 3, verse 6, it says that Eve saw that the fruit, uh, the fruit of the tree was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and that it was a desirable for gaining wisdom, and that's the trouble that we have in our own lives with regards to our own sin at times, right? We, we define it by our own standards, our own morality, our own idea of what's right and wrong in this world. 
And so we can label our own sin as insignificant enough, or we can justify why it's not that bad at times too. So instead of trusting God in the definition of what he's told us in Scripture of what sin is, we go our own way. We relabel it, right? We say that sin is good for food. We say that it is pleasing to the eye, that it is desirable for gain. It reminds me of an interview that a reporter had with Willie Nelson. Uh, they were looking at the golf course that he just purchased, and he was asking Willie about why. And uh, Willie Nelson responded, well, the best part of owning your own golf course is that you get to set your own par for each of the holes, right? And so he looked over and pointed at one, and he said, well, that one over there, that's a par 47. And yesterday, I birdied it. And I think as much as that is a little ridiculous, there's a bit of truth behind that statement that he's saying, right? When we, when we play God, when we put ourselves in the position of authority to determine what is good and what's not, that is us seizing the authority from God to be in control over our own lives, right? So how does God define sin? Not our own standards. What does it look like for Scripture to define sin? Uh, well, when we look to what God has laid out in his word, we actually find three different terms that is used for sin throughout the entirety of the Bible. So we found uh, three words that describe wrongdoing. The first is sin, the most common one that we use. Transgression is the second, and iniquity is the third. Uh, so the first and most commonly used word for sin in the Bible is sin. Uh, in the Hebrew and in Aramaic in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew word for it is chata, and the Greek word is hamartia, uh, so the Old Testament, again, which was written in mostly Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, the word chata was used to describe something as missing the mark or failing to attain the goal. So um, in the book of Judges, we read about a group of Benjamites who were uh, sling throwers, and it says that they could sling a stone at a hare and not chata, that they wouldn't miss their target, that they wouldn't fail to achieve what their goal was. And so... Looking back to the creation of the world, we have failed to attain our goal. But what is our goal? What is that purpose? If sin is missing the point and failing to achieve our purpose, what is that purpose? It was given to us back at the creation in Genesis when God tells us that we are each created in his own image. And since each of us are made in his image, each of us has a worth and a value because we bear a likeness and we represent who God is in this world. So our goal is to treat others like this. It's to love God and to love others, to put it most simply. Right? This is why God gave the Old Testament law to his people. It was to show them what actions were loving towards their neighbors and what weren't. What was the way to love God and what wasn't the way to love God. Uh, even more simply, he put in the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength and mind, and love others in the way you love yourself. This is the summarization of the law. Or even the Ten Commandments, which are kind of the greatest summary of the law put into ten different rules, all of those describe what it looks like to love God and to love others, right? So with this in mind, a failure to live up to our purpose or to live, uh, live up to the goal that we are created for is to treat people not with love, not as created in God's image. And part of the way that sin works in our lives is that it actually blinds us. Right? When you see 
different stories in the Bible of characters who had sinned, oftentimes they don't even recognize that it was actually sin in their lives. Um, even worse off yet, sometimes we see people who think that in their sin they're actually doing good, that they're making the world better off. Um, King Saul, for instance, when he was pursuing David, a righteous man, uh, he thought that he was doing good, that he was bringing justice about in pursuing and trying to kill the righteous David, and it wasn't until he realized his own corruption, he was confronted with it, that he knew he was actually the one in the wrong. So sin, is, is, it's more than just missing the goal. It's more than just failing to attain our created purpose. It's also the lies and the tales we tell ourselves in order to believe our own sense of morality, of what's right and wrong, what's good and what's evil. Right? Just like Adam and Eve did. As humans in this broken world, we're, we're prone to deceive ourselves, right? Which is why, in the New Testament, Paul uses the Greek word hamartia to define sin as the desires within us to do the things we do not want to do. We have an inability within ourselves to judge what is right and what's wrong, because we always give the benefit of the doubt to ourselves and our own sin. We all have a propensity to lie to ourselves about what is right and what is wrong in the world. But we're not stuck here. There's hope. In the Gospels, Jesus would often use the term blindness to refer to people who wouldn't listen and obey his teachings. And so in Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, he, he calls a group of Pharisees blind. They're blind leaders because they held on to their own beliefs instead of accepting the teaching that Jesus was bringing to them and the words that he was saying. And in John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was born into this world so that we would not be stuck in our darkness, our blindness, and continue to suffer the consequences of sin that we don't even recognize as sin in our own lives. We're helpless. But the only way to find truth and life is through Jesus. Every other attempt is just groping in the darkness, not finding our way, and continuing to suffer the sorrow of sin that only leads to death, not to repentance that leaves no regrets. We find life and truth in Jesus, but we have to follow him. We have to trust in his way over our own. And if you haven't made that decision yet, the first step is to repent. Now, I realize repent sounds like a very religious, scary word. All it means is to turn directions, to change the way you were going from the path of not making the point, not hitting the goal of your life, to the purpose that you were created for, to living in that. To get off the path that is missing the goal, to admit that you can't see clearly, that you are blind, and to accept in Jesus the forgiveness that he offers. And if you have made that decision, I want to encourage you this morning. If you've chosen to give up your own way of seeing and living, remember that the sins of unbelievers are because of their blindness, most oftentimes. Because many times in life, we can become discouraged by the brokenness of the world, by the sin that we see in people, in unbelievers, and it can make us bitter. It can make us angry. It can make us angry at the world and, and choose to treat people like they're held at a distance from us, that they're dirty or wrong. But remember, sin is blindness, right? People who haven't allowed Jesus to reshape their view of what is right and wrong don't always know that they're hurting others. And when we choose to react 
to those who sin against us, you know, whether it is by holding grudges, talking about them behind their backs, or even just devaluing them as humans in our minds in the ways that we think about them, we forget that they don't know always what they're doing is wrong. Jesus, on his way to the cross, he prayed these words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. When you are hurt by the actions of unbelievers, by the sins of those who don't know Jesus, remember that they don't always know what's right and wrong. And when we choose to judge believers, unbelievers rather, it's like punishing a dog a week after it's done something wrong. Right? When we choose to judge those who are outside the church, right? a dog isn't going to understand why you're correcting it, why you're punishing it in this moment, and it's only going to take the correction as abuse. And in the same way, sometimes we can treat unbelievers this way. It can bring more abuse than love. And it's not going it's not going to understand why it's being punished, like I said. And so Jesus calls us to forgive. Jesus calls us to continually offer kindness without holding back. To love those who are blind because knowing that we too were once blind. And as we love unbelievers this way, we give them opportunity to know who Jesus is. Um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the, the story, The Lord of the Rings. It's a phenomenal book series, TV series that it was made into as well. But uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, there is a character named Frodo who is given the task of carrying and destroying this ring that is made of pure evil, and it corrupts everything that it comes close to and touches. And for years before Frodo is given power or charge of the ring to destroy it, a person named Gollum carried it. And for hundreds of years, Gollum had this corrupted ring that would change who he was. It physically deformed him. It corrupted him so much that he was thought to be beyond any ability to do good anymore. And so Frodo and his, Sam, his friend Samwise, they're on their way to destroy this ring. And they're on this long journey and they're led by Gollum along the way. And all along this journey, Frodo is continually showing kindness to Gollum because Frodo's carrying the ring now and he sees that it is corrupting him. And so his, uh, in his mind, he's trying to show as much kindness to Gollum as he can to prove that he is not beyond help because he knows that he's being corrupted. And if he can see that a difference is made in Gollum, then he knows he is not left without hope. And so along their journey, as they're carrying the ring, they come to this point where uh, they're tired, and so Frodo and Samwise fall asleep, and Gollum is watching over them, and as they're sleeping, uh, Tolkien, the author, he writes this. A strange expression passed over Gollum's lean, hungry face. The gleam faded from his eyes, and they went dim and gray, old and tired. And slowly, putting out a trembling hand, very cautiously, he touched Frodo's knee, but almost the touch was a caress. It was the first moment throughout, if you read the books, they're very long books, but it's the first moment you see Gollum actually show and portray some moment of good and kindness. He is redeemable, and that's because of the kindness that Frodo had shown him all throughout that time. His fate wasn't sealed within his corruption, and it was because Frodo continued to show kindness to him that Gollum wasn't beyond help. But if you keep reading the story, here's what happens next. Samwise wakes up to see Gollum pawing at his master, is the way Tolkien puts it, and immediately he thinks that Gollum is trying to claim the ring again for himself, that he's reaching out to seize the ring that corrupts. And so Samwise calls Gollum a sneaking villain, he calls him a thief. And at this, again, here's what Tolkien wrote. Gollum withdrew and a green, and a green glint flickered under his heavy lids. 
the fleeting moment had passed beyond recall. This, this one moment that Gollum had to return from his corruption was snatched away by Samwise's actions. He was beyond recall now at this point, and throughout the rest of the story, you see him, Gollum, continually working towards his own selfish ends and evil and corruption until he eventually dies, and all because in this one moment, Samwise called him the villain, because Samwise had named him and given up hope in him. I wonder how many opportunities we take away from unbelievers when we choose to judge them instead of showing them kindness. I wonder how often we can choose to react to people's sin instead of forgiving, and that leads them away from who Jesus is. They don't get a good picture of who he is in this world. Remember, if we're to be representatives of who he is, we're not showing forgiveness and kindness, we can always turn people away from that too. But coming back to the definition of sin, sin is... First, our failure to love God and others, and it is as well our own ability to make up morality, our own view of what is good and what is evil, our ability to seize authority for ourselves in that regard. Now, the next word that we find in the Bible that's used to describe sin uh, is pasha in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, and paraptoma in the Greek. Uh, we translate this word in English as transgression. It's a better way we can understand it. So, Transgression refers to the way in which we violate trust with others that we are in relationship with. So uh, one way that you can think about this is two countries have a peace treaty, for instance, and if one country were to go and invade the other nation or if they were to attack them, they would be pashawing their agreement. It would be going back against their, uh, their trust and their treaty that they had between them two. It's, it's a breaking of trust in a relationship with one another. Um, a really good example of this was in the Old Testament law, it said that if you were to steal from an Israelite who was off away on a journey or away from their house, that that was considered robbery, that that was punishable under the, the name robbery. But if you were to be their neighbor and the one stealing possessions from them, that would be pasha, because there's a violation of trust within a relationship there. They're your neighbor. They should be able to trust you within that. You have broken the relationship. And again, the very first sin of Pasha was back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve violated the trust that God had in them to obey him, to listen to him, to go the direction because he knows what it would lead to, that it would only bring sin and death. Because in the end, all that our transgression brings is betrayal, broken relationship, violence, and ultimately death. In, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus tells us this parable of two men who both owed a debt to a certain lender, and one of them owed two years' wages, and the other one owed two months' wages to the lender. But because neither of them were able to actually pay back their debt, the, the money lender forgave them both their debt. And then Jesus, after he tells this story, he says, which of those two do you think would love their master more? And obviously the answer is the one who was forgiven the greater debt, yes. And then Jesus says this, those who have been forgiven little love little. And now the irony of that is that all of us are guilty of sin. There is no one who has made a small sin in this world against God. All of us have a gap, a black hole in the center of our souls that we cannot fill ourselves. We can try to. We'll always fail within that, though. Jesus goes on to tell us that 
We might think that some, the sins of some are worse than others. We might, at times, might think that our reality is our own reality, that our sin isn't so bad that we can justify it. But in reality, again, all of us have sinned and deserve death because of this. And in this world, there are only two people, the people who see their debt and the people who think that they're owed. Jesus wants us to see that we have broken trust in our relationship with him, with our relationship with others, too every single one of us. And we can either switch the tables around and blame it on God and say that he owes us, or we can recognize that we have a hole in our lives that we cannot fill, that we have created brokenness in this world, that we have lived in our corrupt nature. And instead, we can ask for forgiveness. Right? You and I, when we are pashawed against, when our trust has been violated, we have the desire, we want to retaliate, we want to hurt the other person, we want to make sure that they know that they've done something wrong. Do you know what God's response was in, in, to our transgression, to our pashaw? His response to our untrustworthiness was be trustworthy on our behalf. Jesus saw our broken relationship with him and decided to take and bear the weight of our transgressions upon himself. Isaiah puts it like this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. God, through Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, chose to make a way that we can be in relationship with him again. We're not separated from him by our brokenness, by the mistakes we've made and the things we've done. We're not kept at a distance because of our transgressions. But he's taken that on himself. He took the responsibility for our betrayal. And we are redeemed. This means, too, that our human relationships can have hope as well, right? We no longer have to respond to transgression when someone pushes against us with hate. We can forgive others. We can show kindness, knowing that we have been forgiven a greater debt than anyone will ever have against us. God responds to our betrayal by being trustworthy on our behalf. The last, the last word for sin that we find in the Bible is usually translated as iniquity in the English. Uh, so in the Hebrew, it's the word avon, and in the New Testament, in the Greek, it's anomia. Uh, now, the word avon in the Old Testament comes from the word ava, which is used to describe something that is crooked. Uh, so it's used to describe in one place in, in the uh, major prophets a road that is crooked or bent out of shape. Uh, in the Psalms, it's used to describe a back that is crooked, that is bent, kind of like scoliosis. You can get the idea of that. And, and throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel avah their way, right? Again and again. They choose instead of living for God to live for their idols, to live for their own desires. But not only does this word iniquity or avah refer to behavior that is distorted to crooked works or actions, it also refers to the crooked consequences of those actions as well, right? And the phrase that's often used in the Old Testament is to bear your iniquity, uh, which literally translates to carry your avon. And there's two ways that God responds to our iniquity. And the first is by letting us suffer the consequences of our actions at times, by allowing us to carry the mistakes we've made in our bad decisions 
to see that that is not the right way and in that to help us out. One example of this is in Amos 4, uh, verse 9, where God says, Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your figs and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me. God, at times, will allow us to feel the consequences of our crooked actions for our benefit. It's not to punish us. It's not to make us feel bad about who we are, to guilt and shame us. Again, it's in order to lead us to repentance that leaves no regrets. And like I said, the first way that God does that is he allows us to feel the consequences of our actions. At times, we will suffer the results of our bad choices, but even in those times, we can trust that God is working good to bring us closer to him through this, right? We know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him. Do you see what that promise means? Do you see what it has in store for us? That even in the moments where we are running away from God, when our backs are wholeheartedly turned towards him, that even in those times, he is still able to use that for good. He can turn that around and use it for love. I'll put it like this. Ephesians 5 verse 13 in the NIV says this, but everything that is exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Everything that is illuminated becomes a light. When we expose the sin in our lives, when we bring it into the light and acknowledge to Jesus the mistakes we have made and we ask forgiveness in him, they are brought into the light. But do you hear the second half of that promise? Do you hear the implications? That means everything illuminated becomes a light. It means that not only are the worst parts of our brokenness, the pieces of our lives that we feel most ashamed of, that keep us at a distance from other people, God is able to redeem that and use that for good. The parts of ourselves that we've tried to keep hidden, that you're ashamed of, because all of us know that we are guilty, whether we admit that or shove it further down into our souls. Jesus says, bring that to me. He doesn't just forget what we've done, that's the beauty of it. He transforms it into something that is far better off for having gone through it. Jesus doesn't forget the mess we've made, but he weaves it into the story of our lives, and our stories are better off for having gone through it than for it to just be forgotten. But it can only happen when we bring ourselves to Jesus, to bring ourselves to him humbly and ask that he would help us to see truth not to continue holding on to our version of what's right and wrong, because we're always hurt by that. When we seize authority to discern what's right and wrong in this world, we hurt ourselves. And that's what Jesus came to fix in us. That's what he came to help us see, to take off the blindness. But it can only happen when we allow him to reveal our sin and our brokenness. So once again, I want to remind you what I said at the beginning. Guilt and shame are not the purpose of this sermon series. If that's what you are experiencing, know that that is the work of the enemy. That only leads to guilt and shame. Remember, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to life, and life with no regrets. But as we bring ourselves to God in truth, we are set free. So I want to read for you our, our verse that is kind of our, our main theme for the rest of this uh, series here. It's Acts chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. And I'll close with these words. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. 
and that he may send you the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that in every season we can trust that you are working with us, whether we have our backs turned to you or not. Father, I pray for those of us who have turned our backs on you, that you would help us to see the ways we've done this. Father, not in a guilt or a shame sense, but for the fact that we can see a greater sense of hope and life in you and that we can taste and see that you are good. Father, in all things we recognize that you work them for good for those who love you. We ask that you'd help us to see that in the ways that we've lost perspective. Father, in all this, we thank you that you are working with us, that you care for us, and that your great love is continually willing to transform us into your new creation. So, Father, we thank you for the work that you are doing in us.